So this is the sort of question that I've been puzzling over for a while, right? You know, is there a way of us kind of bursting the bubble in slow motion, if you like? Nice imagery. Um, I am with you. Yeah. Take me on this journey. Hi, Aisha here. We're away this week, but in the meantime, we thought we'd listen back to one of our favourite episodes from last year. Just because house prices being high is problematic, it doesn't mean that reducing house prices suddenly is going to be unproblematic. Beth Stratford is a PhD student at Leeds University, and last February she published a blog post at Open Democracy that was so interesting we knew we had to get her on the pod to talk about it. In the article, she argues it just might be possible to lower house prices without crashing the economy. Joe Bezik, head of housing and land here at the New Economics Foundation, joined me and Beth to chat through the idea. Hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Gentlemen, welcome to Las Vegas. Is that right? Everybody eating? Good. What I'm about to propose to you is both highly lucrative and highly dangerous. Home prices are up here in Indiana and nationally big time. Experts say they're seeing the strongest gain in years, which is not only good for people selling their home, but for the whole economy. The economy is on the upswing. Property prices have absolutely skyrocketed. It's one of the biggest contradictions in British politics. Across the country, baby boomers who own a house cheer as the value of their property goes up and up and up. Carrie and Mark have every reason to celebrate. This time, it was valued at £10,000 more, and the first people that viewed it offered us for asking price. What was your reaction to that? Complete shock (laughs) and overjoyed. Meanwhile, their millennial children and their friends watch on in horror as owning their own home increasingly falls out of their reach. Parents are now helping to fund a quarter of all UK mortgages. Build more homes, say the politicians. I expect developers to do their duty for Britain and build the homes our country needs. Some of them want incentives for private developers to build and others want to give councils the power to build again. Some of them say we need to build on the green belt and others say we need to build into the sky. But very few of them talk about directly reducing house prices. If house prices are too high for people to be able to buy houses, how can we bring them down? And can we do it without upsetting homeowners and crashing the economy? You're out of your goddamn minds. It's never been tried. No, it's never been tried. Those questions and more on today's weekly economics podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. That's why we have to be very careful, very precise. Mm, Well-funded. Yeah. you got to be nuts, too. And you're going to need a crew as nuts as you are. What do you got in mind? Two guests are having their debut on the Weekly Economics Podcast this week. First up, I'm really pleased to be joined by Joe Bezik. Did I say it right? Yeah. Yeah. Who leads on housing for the New Economics Foundation. How's it going, Joe? It's not bad. How are you? Good, good. Very happy to have you. Um, And another special guest this week is Beth Stratford, who's a PhD researcher at the University of Leeds, also focused on housing. Hi, Beth. Thanks for coming all the way down from Leeds, my hometown, to speak to us. Oh, is it? Mm -hmm. Oh, we can Mm. chat about that. Yeah. (laughs) As Australians tighten their belt in the wake of the global financial crisis, house prices are falling. Australia's banks could be sitting on a potential time bomb. Homeowners are mortgaged to the hilt and house prices are falling. Some people say we're in the midst of a housing bubble. Falling house prices are met with panic as fears erupt that we're finally headed for a housing crash. 
But what if we could gradually bring down house prices so that homes were affordable while avoiding a dangerous crash? So, my first question is, how much more difficult is it these days to buy a house than it was in the past? House prices are up, of course, but mortgage interest rates are way down on the sky-high rates of the 80s. So, Beth and Joe, how did we get here? Why are house prices so high? Well, on the first one, for much of the middle part of the 20th century, there was a, there was a link, there was a historic link between house prices and, and incomes. House prices de- tended to be in, a, in any given area about three to four times uh, local incomes. That historic link has now been totally severed, uh, such that house prices in London can be 13, 14 times the average income. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of why house prices have, have why we've seen that like massive break from from the past. I mean, if you listen to the mainstream, I think you'd be forgiven for thinking that uh, it's all about shortages of housing um, mm. and that the price rises can be entirely explained, in, you know, that we just need to build more houses. But I think if you look at, and maybe in time for this podcast going out, I should like make this graph and tweet it because it's easier when you're pointing out graph. Yeah. But like, if you look at like the number of houses that we've got divided by the number of households, and you kind of plot that on a graph, and then you look at house prices divided by incomes, there's no correlation. Like, the, the shortages are not explaining the times of the booms and busts, the scale of the booms and busts, or the geographical variation. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't real shortages in certain areas, but we have to look at what's going on on the demand side, and that's so frequently neglected in, in mainstream explanations. There are two factors really which stand uh, which stand out, and the time period we're talking is about the 1980s until the present day. The first was the winding down of the council housing system. So most famously, this is uh, the ex- exemplified by the right to buy policy. Uh, so council tenants gaining uh, the right to buy their property at a heavy discount, of, often up to £100,000 subsidised by the state. The homes which were bought under the right to buy programme were never replaced. So the massive uh, decrease in the number of council homes to a level, or I think we've lost around, is it around 1.2 million council homes since since 19. 19- 1980 was combined with another factor which affected uh, the private housing market which was which is known as the liberalization of the mortgage market up until the 1980s mortgages were only offered by building societies so as a cabal of building societies were able to offer offer mortgages the market was totally opened up in the 1980s uh, banks were allowed to enter it uh, which meant there was a lot more um, more competition which drove down price of mortgages and in addition it was combined with financial innovations within the mortgage sector most Famously, securitization, which you know partly led to the global financial crisis of 2007 to 10. So this this combination of uh, of more players in the mortgage market and greater financial innovation meant that there has been a ballooning increase in credit available to buy homes in the UK. So um, as prices increase, the traditional economic explanation is that demand is massively exceeding supply. But when credit is involved, things get a little bit more complicated. It's not necessarily although it might be the case that demand is exceeding supply it's just that the supply the amount of money of the amount of credit available to people to buy those homes can artificially inflate the price of homes so now you have a highly liberalized mortgage market and and then i mean i've spoken for too long so i'd like to hand over to beth but the the third the third element is the growth of the private rental sector buy to let mortgages homes becoming assets basically yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, um, and that's, you know, and that's partly uh, following on from uh, the decimation of the social housing stock. So now you've got this sort of captive market of people who A, can't get into social housing and B, can't, af- can't afford to get on the social, uh, get on, on the housing ladder, um, who've got no choice but to rent. Then you've got Thatcher, obviously in the 80s, dismantling rent controls and dismantling tenants' rights so that landlords could start setting rents at whatever level they wanted to and raising them annually um, and kicking out tenants who, who hadn't broken any terms of the lease. And all of those things, uh, you know, combined with the advent of buy-to-let mortgages, made investment in in property just way more attractive. So we've just had this total frenzy of uh, buy-to-let investment, which is one of the one of the key reasons for this total break from, from the past in terms of prices. Domestic and, and foreign elites just buying second homes and leaving them empty is also a factor, but it's a more sort of localised factor in prime hotspots of central London or holiday holiday locations. It's the buy-to-let frenzy that's that's really to blame. Okay, so we've covered a lot there. Just to bring us back to uh, to all good stuff and we'll get to it. Um, Obviously, two thirds of people almost are homeowners now. But for those people who already are homeowners, what does this mean? Like, is it a good thing for them? Um... Some of them, yeah. I mean, this is to come back to the question of are high, are high house prices good for the economy? Mm. I mean, it depends what you want the economy to do. Yeah. Like, if you want the economy to serve the interests of landlords and estate agents and mortgage lenders, then yeah, great. If you want the economy to like amplify the power and privilege of you know, people who inherit wealth, housing wealth, then great. You know, if you want neighbourhoods, desirable neighbourhoods to be increasingly cleansed of the riffraff who are pushed out to more and more distant boroughs, great. Um, does all those things for you. Um, but obviously, if you want the economy to serve the interests of most people, it doesn't help you. It just it, it opens up this chasm uh, of opportunity between people who inherit housing and, and people who don't. If you, and if you create this system where people can make a quick buck out of speculating on housing assets, then you totally disincentivize people from using their savings to invest in productive things. You know, actually, innovation, productivity increases, making new goods and services, adding to the the wealth of society. They're just going to be pouring money into buying existing assets, which is unproductive investment. It's parasitical, essentially, on the work of everybody else in the economy. And the second thing is that when you allow house prices to rise off the back of this kind of debt fueled speculation, you make the economy really vulnerable to a reversal in house prices because the behaviour of investors, it amplifies house price movements on the way up because they're all piling in. But investors, like unlike homeowners who want to live in the home they own, investors have no interest in holding on to an asset if it's not making them any money anymore. Mm-hmm. So as soon as it stops making the money, it looks like it's going to fall, they'll all pile out of the market as fast as they can. And the Bank of England's been warning about this actually for several years now, that we've got like a fifth of the housing stock owned, owned by investors now. And that's that's creating really systemic vulnerabilities for us. Okay, so thinking about some of the potential solutions to to these issues. Theresa May gave a big speech on housing the other week. She said that the government wants to rewrite planning laws and push house builders to build more homes. They've got a target of uh, 300,000 new homes a year. And then there's help to buy, which I know we've already discussed, an abolition of stamp duty for first-time buyers. Will any of that make houses more affordable? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Great. I mean, short, short answer, no. Um, so surprised. It's so clear that 
they're in many ways making it worse. Mm. Government housing policy and housing investment can be divided into two distinct areas, demand subsidy and supply subsidy. Government policy at the moment, in contrast to much of the much of the latter half of the 20th century, concentrates on subsidising demand. So help to buy is a characteristic policy here. This is where the government guarantees equity loans to give those people who are just outside being able to afford a house a little leg up so they can buy a house. The other one that everyone will have heard of is housing benefits. So this subsidises people to uh, increase their demand power in the private rented sector or in the social rented sector in order that they can uh, afford to rent a house. And the effect of of these policies... Research has shown, uh, particularly on the help to buy side, it is actually to inflate at least partially the cost of houses to the amount of which the, which the, the, the subsidy totals. So hundreds of billions, we are really talking hundreds of billions of pounds in the, in the between 2011 and 2015, 115 billion was invested in these demand side policies. And the effect of these doesn't produce a single home. The other suite of policies which the government concentrated on for much of the the half of the 20th century was supply-side policies. This basically means government builds houses or pays people to build houses. And for that same period, 2011 to 2015, we sent just £1.1 billion on supply-side policies. So the government subsidising demand is in fact just stoking the current crazy market as opposed to investing its money in building our way out of the housing crisis is building genuinely affordable homes. Mm. Beth, do you want to add anything there? You have a frown on your face. Um, well, it depends what your next question is going to be, because okay. you might take us off on a night. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, let's, should we see? Yeah, let's, let's see. see. <laughs> All right, so if we're agreed that house prices need to come down, how do we make that happen without damaging the economy? We've obviously talked a little bit more about affordable housing, things like that. But <clears throat> yeah, I mean, this is this is the rub, right? Because just mm-hmm. just because house prices being high is problematic, it doesn't mean that reducing house prices suddenly is going to be mm-hmm. unproblematic. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, these feedback loops that we didn't actually dis- discuss, but there are these feedback loops that have contributed to the boom occurring. And the feedback loop goes from bank lending decisions and borrower de- borrowing decisions fee- and then uh, house prices going up and then that altering expectations and that drawing in the uh, investors and then that creating house price, you know, pushing prices up further and then banks going, ah, prices are rising. We're going to get a bit more gung-ho here uh, because we can lend higher loan-to-income ratios, you know, and higher loan-to-value ratios because, well, if the, if, the, if the borrower can't pay us back, we get this asset which we know is going to have risen in value or we expect is going to have a, a risen in value. But when prices start to falter and go down, those feedback loops go into reverse, right? Mm. So banks get nervous. They're like, well, we don't want to lend with such big loan-to-income ratios because, you know, the, 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 the asset that we're collateralizing against is going down in value. And borrowers get more nervous. And so that puts downward pressure on prices. And then investors decide to leave. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you can quickly kind of end up in this in this sort of downward spiral. And 
because households have been encouraged to, you know, uh, take on these enormous amounts of debt, we have hundreds of thousands of households who would be pushed into negative equity in the context of a house price fall. Mm -hmm. And that might be fine if they're happy sitting in their house for the next 20 years. But if they want to move house, or if they've uh, taken on a mortgage on like a teaser rate, you know, the low uh, interest rates, and then, you know, that mortgage, that teaser rate comes to an end, and they want to remortgage, well, it they can't remortgage because they're in negative equity. So then they face these really high standard variable rates. And then you get defaults. And then the banks who've got these balance sheets, which are like dominated with, with assets that are basically tied to the value of the housing market. Those banks start to uh, face higher levels of default and start to worry about their own solvency. And, you know, even if we don't see another uh, financial crisis, uh, even if we don't see banks actually going insolvent, we have all, all sorts of kind of domino effects on the wider economy. Because if, if banks slow their uh, lending, rate of lending, that's a kind of, that's a key avenue through which money is currently injected into the economy. And if that becomes squeezed, we're not going to we're going to feel that as a sort of reduction in the liquidity, the reduction in the, in the amount of demand, the purchasing power in the economy, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. you've got, at the moment, you've also got people who feel themselves to be extremely rich because they've got highly inflated house, house, houses and they're, so they're spending left, right and centre. And if you take that away suddenly, they're going to be cutting back on their consumption and businesses are going to feel that and, you know, before you know it, you're back in a in a, a deep recession. Um, so, so what do yes. we do? If that sounds shit, what else have we got? Yeah, right, okay. So this is the sort of question that I've been puzzling over for a, a while, right? You know, is there a way of us kind of bursting the bubble in slow motion, if you like? Nice, imagery, um, I am with you. Yeah. Take me on this <laughs> right. journey. Um, so is there a way for us to protect people who are in negative equity mm -hmm. or give them a way of getting out of negative equity to make sure when investors sell, it is renters who are buying those properties, not second homeowners. So if renters buy them, you don't have to worry so much about a shortage of rental properties, right? Because the renter's just going to buy the homes that were owned by investors. If you avoid your bank crises, da -da 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 -da, then a reduction in house prices could be a really healthy thing, right? Because it means much less being extracted out of the economy in terms of mortgage interest and rent by these sort of parasitical um, mm -hmm. <laughs> actors. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I don't need to go on about why, uh, why it would be a good thing. I think many people know, understand intuitively. So how could we do this? Like, I've... I've floated this proposal and I floated it not because I think it's polished and finished and perfect but because I think we we need to start having a discussion mm -hmm. about how we might do this the proposal is for a people's land trust which mm. is essentially a independent non-profit institution publicly backed right that would buy the land from underneath houses and lease it to members how is that going to help us Mm -hmm. um, okay. I'm still with you. It's like so. There's there's like several steps to the logic here, so you got to concentrate. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. So there's two groups that I think could be potentially interested in leasing the land underneath their houses rather than owning it. The first is people who are pushed into negative equity, mm -hmm. who need to get out of debt. 
Um, you're going to... I think you're going Sorry. to need to do an explainer on oh, negative yeah. equity. Because you said it a couple of times and I was like, I think I get what that is. But the more we go on, I'm like, mm. Sure, sure. Right. Just so people whose the debt outstanding on their home mm-hmm. is of a higher value than the home itself. So even if they okay. sold the home mm-hmm. to pay off their mortgage, they, they would still, they'd owe, still on the owe money. Because right. right. house prices have gone down after they bought their home. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I, yes, I'm with you. So right. these people... Yeah. Yes. So these people could uh, sell the land from underneath their home to the People's Land Trust mm-hmm. and use that chunk of money to pay down some of their mortgage debt and get, get themselves out of negative equity. Mm-hmm. Okay? And Still so it's, a, it's kind of like, it's a sort of version of a, a mortgage rescue, but it's not getting something for nothing mm-hmm. because these people then start paying a land rent, a, a land rent to the land trust. That's the first group. We'll come back to them in a minute. This might be a stupid question, but do most people own the land as well as the house? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Good. Let's go. Even, you know, even uh, leaseholders, Mm -hmm. they're paying a ground rent, but the ground rent is usually peanuts. It doesn't actually reflect the value of the land. Yeah. So... The, the price they paid for the house reflects the value of the land underneath. Mm-hmm. And this is what the proposal here is to actually separate out in a meaningful way the ownership of the land and the ownership of the house. Okay. Okay. Yes. So yes. the second group that might be interested in this would be people who want to own their own home and who can't currently afford the deposit requirement to get a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um now, because in some places, like in, in, in certain parts of London and expensive areas, like the, the price of the bricks and mortar can actually be very, a relatively small proportion, like I don't know, a quarter of the price of, of the overall property. So if you're only having to put up money up front or, or, or a deposit up front for that bit, it's a much smaller barrier to get over. How much smaller are we talking? Out of interest, as a salivating millennial, how much money are we talking? <laughs> Well, I, you see, um, I, I mean, I think, I think we're talking about, um, like, in, in many places in London, the bricks and mortar being just a third of the total value of the property. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm kind of plucking that number out of, out of the air, mm. um, but I'd say somewhere between a half and a third of, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so if you could get the, the, the idea is like if you're, if you're an individual, maybe you're a housing co-op, maybe you want to set up a mutual and live with, with other people, you approach the People's Land Trust, you say, can you pay for the land and can you grant us a mortgage just to buy the bricks and mortar? Mm-hmm. And again, you, start, you sign this lease and you start paying a land rent. Now, one of the reasons that helps is that you then have this like ready pool of renters who can buy houses as investors sell them. Mm-hmm. which kind of mitigates against the risk of this really sudden drop-off out of, dem- of demand in the market and, and a kind of sudden drop in prices. But it also means that the renters are moving into those homes and you don't have the same shortage of rental properties. Yeah? Yeah. Follow that? Mm-hmm. So then, so both, so both of these groups uh, are paying a land rent in return for, for living there and they get have indefinite right to stay on the land. And so that means the People's Land Trust is getting this constant flow of income, which eventually will allow them to run a surplus, and that surplus can be used to proactively fund social housing. It could also be potentially redistributed as an equal dividend to the members of the People's Land Trust, but that's a kind of a question that's up, up for discussion about which would be most appropriate. And when people wanted to move house, they would sell just the bricks and mortar 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and the lease would transfer to the new buyers. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And there would be no scope for them making windfall gains off the, you know, off the sale, in the way that people do now when they sell houses, because currently people make the windfall gains that are coming from changes the in the value of land. Mm-hmm. But you've separated out the ownership, and so. The, the land rents themselves are adjusted to, in order to maintain that separation so that the bricks and mortar mm-hmm. maintain a roughly stable value, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so would so I'm, I'm assuming this would be government-funded, the People's Land Trust. I think it needs to be, yeah, in order to be of a useful scale. Yeah. yeah, and so wouldn't that be extortionately expensive for the government and, and with land prices as they currently are? Yes, Yes, it's okay. a lot of money. We're talking mm-hmm. about a lot of money. I mean, it could scale up at different rates, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you are talking about buying an asset that has a stream of income attached to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are different ways you could fund that. You know, you could raise money through bonds finance. You could raise money through the Public Works Loan Board, which is like a low interest way that publicly backed institutions borrow money. You know, you could fund it from uh, 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 taxes on the rental income of landlords or land value taxes, you know, you could also, uh, and this is what, like, this is going to sound radical uh, to mainstream economists, but you could uh, fund at least some of this through what some people call, Adair Turner calls, overt monetary financing, which is sometimes, I think Neff has called it strategic quantitative easing in the past. So mm. this is basically using, sorry for the jargon, but it's basically <laughs> using the, the state's power of money creation in order to do this purchase. And that sounds a bit like scary and wacky. Um, but if you think about the counterfactual, if you think about business as usual, what's going on is somebody will come along and they'll ask the bank for a mortgage to buy the land the bank creates money out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're you're no longer saying that the bank is going to lend people the money, uh, is going to create the money for you to purchase the land, then that is a key avenue through which money is currently injected into the economy. And there's, a, there's an economic argument for saying that you will need an alternative avenue for money to be injected into the economy if you, you know, unless you want mm. to see a sort of contraction of the money supply. So from that point of view, some of this being funded through strategic QE is not crazy, I don't think. But that was a long-winded answer to the <laughs> question. <laughs> but I, feel, I mean, I, I feel quite excited. I feel like I, I followed it and uh, lots of ideas. <laughs> um, Joe, you've been quiet for a while. I have, I've got a final question, but I just want to get your thoughts on uh, on these ideas from Beth? Um, my main thought is, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, heads bigger than mine are needed to really get to grips with the many stages and the intricate more layers than an onion to the, to the idea. I do, I do, I mean, there are a few things which stand out f- for, for me but then when we listen to exciting and radical ideas, we're always like picking holes in them. And mm. maybe now isn't, isn't, isn't the time for that. I think Beth's idea is extremely, extremely interesting in one and, the potent, and, and, and a way of deflating the housing system 
and potentially allow and, and all of the, the the benefits which come with that in terms of allowing the government to in, introduce policies which remove from society all of the iniquities which flow from our crazily inflated land and housing market. So I don't want to find holes in it. I want to kind of celebrate the endeavour mm. that she's put into trying to put it together and coming up with a solution to a problem that seems almost so massive not as to have a solution. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would also add that you know, am I confident that this 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 proposal has no holes in it? No. Yeah. Um, am I confident that we need to think seriously about how we manage a house price fall? Yes. Like I mm. don't. I mean, uh, you know, as somebody who's like passionate about re- ending the injustice of the the exploitation of renters. I really think we need to see an introduction of rent controls, or at least we need to see rents coming down. And you do not bring rents down without putting a dent in landlord profits. And if you put a dent in landlord profits, some of them will decide to sell. And if some of them decide to sell, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. you think, you've got to think about this clearly. Like, there isn't a solution to the housing crisis that doesn't involve, in my opinion, managing a house a fall in house prices Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know picking up the pieces of that if it happens in an uncontrolled way and causes it and we have to bail out the banks again is going to be really expensive Mm -hmm. and picking up the pieces of well picking up the pieces of continued inflation i mean that could be the other solution we allow the government to just keep more help to buy stimulus more loosening of monetary policy more incentives for property you know investment they could keep pumping up the housing prices. And then we've got to pick up the pieces of a totally polarised, unequal society for decades to come. I mean, the alternatives are, uh, are not equally, attractive. Equally radical and crazy and, and right. Huge. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like big problems need big solutions, right? <laughs> sure. Right. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of the idea of home ownership um and so a question for me just to just to end is is this part of kind of a plan or an idea to move the uk away from being a property owning democracy as, as margaret thatcher would have described it is it a good thing for people to share the ownership of their home with a state-backed institution and if so do you think after all this time of of uh, building a nation of homeowners that people will get on board with that i mean the relationship between home ownership and and their English psyche is is an often misrepresented one. While it is very important to a lot of people, the benefits which people associate with home ownership, for example, the ability to make changes to your own home that you want to, and having uh, no one being able to take your home off you or evict you, and not having to pay a large amount of mo- often not having to pay a large amount of money every month for your home, they're not necessarily things that uh, are are true in and of home ownership and not true of other ways of living in in homes. It's just that in the present broken housing system in the UK, home ownership for those people who can afford it is by far the best way of living. And so obviously Mm. nowadays, sure, home ownership is best. I think we need to build, I think the expectation of home ownership for all is probably unrealistic within the UK system and definitely creates all sorts of wider problems in society, which Beth has already talked about. I think we need to build, build a system where alternatives to home ownership are much more attractive and decent and secure and affordable and so home ownership no longer becomes that attractive an option it just becomes one option among many Mm. yeah i i'd agree with that and i mean i'd also say that 
I can I can absolutely understand, and I have it myself, the desire to own your own bricks and mortar, like it to be you know, like like you say, to be able to like renovate and make a space your own, and really know that it, you can stay there for the long haul. But I think that there are fairly strong kind of philosophical and ethical reasons for land not being in private ownership. Mm. I mean, I think if, if you were to like start a society from scratch on a, on a new island somewhere, you would not allow private ownership of the land because the land is the kind of ultimate common good, right? Like mm-hmm. nobody created it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a gift from nature. And whoever owns it is going to be able to extract, because it's a scarce resource, they're going to be able to extract rents from that. And I just... It doesn't sit with me that that those rents ought to be appropriated by private individuals um, mm-hmm. through no effort and sacrifice or contribution of their own. Mm. It really makes much more sense to me that rents from land ought to be socialized if possible. And this is not a proposal to nationalize land by any stretch of the imagination. It's a, it's, it's a proposal to allow for some people to voluntarily lease their land off of a collective body. But at least it means within that system, land rents are socialised and could be redistributed either to members or, or to elsewhere in society to fix other housing-related problems. Mm. So... That makes sense. That kind of answers the the question, sort of. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Okay, great. So our quick fire final final round um, for you both before I let you leave this place um, is 30-second answer. Is Brexit going to cause a crash in the housing market? (laughs) I mean, uh, I think um, in a way, like all of the speculation about whether Brexit is going to cause a crash in the housing market could mm. cause a crash in the housing market, right? Because, mm. <laughs> like, I mean, if you're if you're somebody who's just on the verge of wanting to buy a house, and you're like, oh, I could, we could hold off actually, we could hold off eighteen months and just see how the dust settles after Brexit, mm. and then we can make this massive, massive financial decision. Like, you'd probably want to do that, and just that in itself means that there's going to be much less demand coming forward from first-time buyers, and if that happens, then, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't know whether it will cause a crash, but it could, um, and the kind of, the point is that we're in such a vulnerable position with, uh, we're in this bubble now, and then, and when you're in that situation, all sorts of little shocks or internal endogenous dynamics could could trigger a, a fall. Mm. I would like to see the fall triggered by rent controls um, along the lines that outlined by um, Generation Rent. Mm. They've got a good good report called 21st Century Rent Control that explains actually how you, you do it in practice. And then I think that would that would bring huge benefits of its own. Mm. Joe? I mean, I, I, I agree with Beth, which is kind of... Yes, quite possibly. But mm. I, guess, I guess another thing to say is that there's not one housing market, there's many housing markets, and they're yeah. all interrelated. If you are in or you go to London right now, um, you can see crashy-like things happening. So in some, like figures were just released the other day, which showed in some boroughs there has been like a almost crash-esque 15% drop in house prices in some boroughs. That's a crash. But if you look into this in a little bit more detail, it's not a crash across all homes in all places, at all tenures, at all price points. 
It's a crash primarily in the prime market. So the biggest crash in London is in one million pound one bedroom flats. And this comes down to the fact that the government talks, uh, you know, talks a, a, a real good talk and which is broadly accepted across the political spectrum that we have an undersupply of homes at the moment. But it's actually not true. In every type of home, we don't have an undersupply. What we don't, what, what is established is that in London, we have an oversupply of luxury homes. So we have an oversupply of prime homes. That means there is more supply than there is people who can afford to buy them, effective demand. So maybe we will see crashes in that part of the market. And I probably look, wouldn't weep too many tears on my pillow over the collapsing prime London housing market. Of course, that might have ramifications for other parts of the housing market where people much more struggling in their housing situation are affected. But in some parts of the market, we are already seeing a crash. Okay. They were pretty long 30 seconds, but it was interesting. <laughs> I will let you have it. I'll let you have it. Um, no, thank you so much, Beth and Joe, for joining me on the podcast this week, taking me through your big ideas for solving some of our big problems. That's a recurring theme with the Week Economics podcast. <laughs> that was a high five you just heard. That was a high five. Um, and of course, thanks to you, lovely listener. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps boost us up the charts and get new listeners, as does sharing on social media, so please do that too. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. Bye.